Hello and welcome back to Instant Mom. Today we're talking about something not quite foster care and adoption specific, although this definitely applies to children in care too. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is navigating a child's ADHD suspected diagnosis or recent diagnosis. Before I get into it, I of course want to be clear that I am not a medical professional, if you weren't aware of that by now. This episode is not supposed to be for any kind of medical or therapeutic advice. It's really just passing on some knowledge from one parent to another of someone who has been in that very confusing stage of, I think my kid has ADHD, or I just found out my kid has ADHD, and I don't even know what I don't even know, and what do I do now? I personally was really surprised to find that there weren't clear next steps when Jack was diagnosed with ADHD. I really, truly, literally thought I would get some kind of pamphlet or PDF from the doctor that was like, navigating ADHD, your roadmap. Uh, And that did not exist at all. I found a lot of disconnected providers that might have a window into their lane and maybe a glimpse into something else, but they didn't have the full landscape either. And I ended up learning a lot and sort of fumbling through the grapevine. I'd be talking to someone who would bring up one thing, and then another person was like, oh, have you heard about this? And then I'd see a nugget of something in a Facebook group, and then a teacher would mention one thing. And it was really all by accident that I found any of this out. And probably only by accident because I happened to be like a very nosy, talkative, fairly well-connected person. Um, So I would ask a lot of questions, I would share my story a lot, and I would sort of accidentally run into these resources or pieces of advice. And I've had so many mom friends with, um, with kids who have suspected ADHD or a new diagnosis who are in a similar position. And because I talk about our journey a lot, they've asked me, like, what do I do? Where do I go? What do I need to think about? And I can't tell you how many very long emails or text messages, or in some case, rambling voice notes, I have sent these mom friends of mine trying to kind of pass along the advice that I got along the way. But thought it would might be easier selfishly for me to do that at scale by recording a podcast episode. And I also know this is something that is incredibly common for um, kids of any background, but particularly for kids um, who are in care and thought others could benefit from this too. This advice or this these sort of pointers that I have is applicable to anywhere you might be in the country or the world. But if you happen to be in the Indianapolis area, I do have some specific names of providers, schools, daycares, therapists, etc. So feel free to message me and I'm happy to pass along those Indianapolis specifics. So before I get into my Uh, advice on steps to take if you're navigating this diagnosis or suspecting this diagnosis, I wanted to give you just an overview of our journey and experience with um, the ADHD diagnosis and sort of what steps we took and what lessons we learned along the way. If you just want to skip straight to the advice and don't want to hear my story, that's fine. I suggest you skip ahead maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so, and I'll I'll meet you uh, at the advice part after this. So my journey with Jack and his ADHD started really early, and I'm really thankful for that because early interventions we know are a huge key to success. So it started when Jack was just two years old, and his daycare at the time flagged some behaviors. 
I blew this off, frankly, as the daycare being completely unrealistic and having unrealistic expectations because I was like, he's two, like he's still a baby. Of course, he's going to be a wild man and have no attention span and and not have any impulse control. I wasn't really listening, though. I was very defensive at the time. Um, but I think the daycare was saying, hey, it's not just that he doesn't have an attention span and he doesn't have any impulse control, because of course, that's what two-year-olds uh, are like. But that what he was um, exhibiting versus what an average kid might be exhibiting were very, very different. But in any case, I decided that the daycare was crazy and um, and pulled him out of that daycare eventually. And we went to another daycare. Long story short, after a while, that daycare said the same thing. And at this point, I was also seeing behaviors at home that I thought were a little bit off too. But I was still convinced at the time that even if this was ADHD, that um, the solution was a very strict daycare slash preschool environment. I thought maybe the other two environments were just too chaotic. There were a lot of kids. The daycare classrooms weren't the most organized. And so I was like, okay, well, he just needs a whole lot of structure and this will be fine. So I enrolled him in the best private preschool I could find. In fact, it's actually a school that goes from preschool all the way up through eighth grade. And I was like, this will be perfect. It is the best private school money can buy in the state. Like they are known for their uh, sort of rigorous academia and rigorous curriculum. And they brag about their eighth grade graduates go on to these awesome high schools. And those kids then go on to these awesome colleges. And I was like, aha, problem solved. Um, But he only lasted there a couple of months um, before they asked him to leave because they were also seeing these behaviors. And um, I was just really, uh, I was devastated. I was, because, you know, when your child is rejected three times by three different daycares, you know, that really breaks your heart. And I was just so sad because he was such, and is, such a wonderful, amazing, bright, compassionate child. I was like, why aren't they seeing this? Why are they just seeing the bad? And he was also starting to internalize it because at this time he was four years old. And he, even though I would try to hide it from him and just say, oh, you know what? That school wasn't quite a fit for where we want to be. Let's try something new. Like he's smart and he knew that and and felt a sense of rejection. And that was really, really tough. And I just remember sobbing in my car after I had the conversation with this private school when they said, you know, he's just not a right fit for here. And I felt so hopeless. This seems ridiculous to say out loud now. But at the time, I was like, oh my God, he's just destined to be kicked out of school, you know, throughout his whole life. And he's never going to finish high school and he's never going to go to college and he's never going to get a job and he's going to be living in a van by the side of the road. Like it was literally that level of insanity. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and from a practical standpoint, too, at this point, I had exhausted like all of the good daycares and preschools that I was aware of. Um, and I was afraid to go anywhere else because I knew that he would just do the same thing and that it was only a matter of time before the daycare kicked him out. Um, just to give you an idea of what we were seeing, in case you were seeing something like this, what ADHD might look like in a two-year-old or a four-year-old, um, we were seeing a lot of disruptive behaviors such as um, 
you know, getting up and running around, not being able to sit down, not being able to follow pretty easy instructions, you know, one and two step instructions, a lot of aggression, which um, is weird because he's not an aggressive kid, but it was sort of more like impulse control um, and just things that, that the teachers weren't able to control. The other thing that was really interesting to me is that in this private school that I had so much faith in, the preschool teacher actually had her master's degree in early childhood education. And so I was really hopeful that if anyone knows how to, um, I don't want to say the word control, but at the time I thought if anyone knows how to control this situation, it's going to be her. And so it was extra devastating when even she was like, yeah, no, this is, this is not going to work out. And at the time, we were doing some therapies. So about the time that we got kicked out of the second preschool um, or the second daycare before we entered this very expensive private preschool, we started doing some therapies, different kinds of therapies, which I'll get to later. And one of the therapists, when I was, you know, literally crying on her shoulder, wondering what we were going to do, asked us if we'd ever tried a developmental preschool. I'd never heard of a developmental preschool. I didn't even know what they were. And I will talk about them more here in a second. And when we found this developmental preschool, it was absolutely life-saving. These women were amazing. (laughs) Uh, One was a speech therapist, one was an occupational therapist, and one was a special ed teacher. And they just had one classroom of kids who just learned differently or had different challenges. And it was so amazing because it was the first time in his four years of life where Jack was really embraced for who he was at a daycare or a preschool. They were like, we love him no matter what his behaviors are. We see potential in him. Like he is not a bad kid. He's not going to be punished here. Um, That was the other thing is I felt like he was developing the self-fulfilling prophecy of being a bad kid because he was always being punished at daycare or school. He was always being taken to the principal's office or taken out of the classroom or made to sit in a corner or losing his privileges. And I still feel so sad when I think about the effect that had on him as feeling like he was bad and he he wasn't bad at all. And so it was just so wonderful that these women were so incredible and very quickly brought out all of the amazingness inside of him. The problem was that developmental preschool, like a lot of developmental preschools, are only part-time. It was two days a week for two hours a day, and I worked full-time, so that was not going to work. (laughs) And so then we kind of heard through the grapevine about this other developmental preschool, uh, which was full-time, and we were just so excited. It had a small wait list, so we stuck it out for a little bit. We finally got a spot on there, and it completely changed our life. I mean, they were just... Uh, they still are the most amazing teachers. Shout out to Miss Tiffany and Miss Valerie. If you guys are listening to this, they were fantastic and it really gave us hope. And they connected us with a lot of the other resources that we use now. Um, and so that's sort of how we navigated the journey of a lot of trial and error, hearing through things through the grapevine, um, and a lot of guidance from professionals we found along the way. And then he was able to enter kindergarten last school year with an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, which I will also talk about, which was so amazing because on the very first day of kindergarten at his new school, he already had the supports in place that he needed and the teacher knew how to support him. And that was fantastic. And um, now he'll be starting first grade in a few weeks and he's doing really well. So um, it was a, a very bumpy road, but we navigated our way out of it. 
Okay, so if you fast forwarded through that part, welcome back. (laughs) I want to talk now about the eight different steps you should take if you are suspecting an ADHD diagnosis or you have a new ADHD diagnosis. Step one, start with your pediatrician, but don't end there. So of course you always want to start with your pediatrician because you want to talk to a medical professional who knows you and knows your child. But I think a lot of people stop at their pediatrician. And I'm very grateful that our pediatrician was super honest with us. We love him. He is amazing. He is not convenient at all and that he lives literally several towns away, but we still go to him because we love him so much. But he was like, hey, I know enough about ADHD and kids, but I am by no means a specialist. So he really encouraged us to find a developmental pediatrician. And that's what we did. So we're already at step two. Step one, start with your pediatrician, see what advice they might give you. But also, even if your pediatrician is amazing, step two, find a developmental pediatrician. So before this, I didn't even know what a developmental pediatrician was. I had no idea what they did. Long story short, a developmental pediatrician specializes in developmental I don't think we use the word disorders anymore, developmental challenges, issues, developmental delays. And they specialize in these behavioral disorders um, that sometimes can require medication management. Now, I will talk about medicine at the very end. I won't get to that now. But a behavioral pediatrician is great even if you decide that you don't want to try medication or you don't want to try it yet. They can give you other referrals that you might need, um, like you know sleep studies because kids with ADHD often have sleep problems. They can give you occupational therapy refer- referrals if you need that. So they are a great sort of um, compass or main anchor for anything else you might need to get ADHD support. So definitely find a great developmental pediatrician. I would also consider a developmental preschool if your child is preschool aged. This was again something I did not even know existed before this happened to me. But most public school systems or township school systems have a developmental preschool in the district. Usually they just have like one developmental preschool for the whole district. Some schools have multiple um, and they don't necessarily market them because it is just for kids who have some kind of developmental need. Um, So you probably haven't heard about them until you actually need to start looking for them. They're kind of these well-kept secrets. The great news is because public school systems have developmental preschools tucked within them, They're free to you, which is really, really fantastic. You get this great free resource. And they are staffed by teachers and other providers who specialize in these developmental delays. So our our developmental preschool was actually a private one, just like a regular school. There are public and private options. And our school was staffed by an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, and a special ed teacher. And so not only are they sort of learning and playing in the traditional preschool way, but they get these supportive services, occupational therapy, speech therapy, et cetera, in the classroom setting. So it's almost like a therapeutic classroom, and it's just really fantastic. They focus on the strengths of your child. They tailor their activities to what your child needs. And they do a great job of making every kid feel like they are awesome and that they have these strengths and there aren't any bad kids in the room. Um, So as I mentioned, there are the public ones. There are also private developmental preschools. I found at least in our area, there aren't very many of them. I mean, like 
in the whole Indianapolis area, I think I found like three. Um, and both the public and the private variety typically offer limited hours. So from what I could tell from my research, again, just in Indiana, even the public developmental preschools are usually a few days a week, a few hours a day. So um, don't get discouraged if you're only finding part-time programs. Um, maybe try to look for some um, complementary private developmental preschools that you could kind of stick on top of that if you're needing full-time care. Step number four, give occupational therapy a go. This was another thing I had a complete misconception about before Jack. I think I confused occupational therapy and physical therapy or thought they were kind of the same thing, that that's where you went if you had an injury or you had something physically wrong with your bones or your muscles and you needed support. Um, But occupational therapy is fantastic for kids who have executive functioning challenges, which is a really fancy way of saying they might have trouble focusing or um, prioritizing a a task at hand or um, controlling impulses, those kinds of things, executive functions. And to kids, it just looks like they're playing, which is the great thing. Um, We've done occupational therapy at a few different places, and they always are these like big rooms that have all sorts of fun toys and games. There are big bouncy exercise balls, and there are tumbling mats, and there are balance beams. Um, And they do these activities with the children to help them learn gross motor control, fine motor control, and also practice working on their big feelings and mindfulness. So, you know, like, hey, when we start to feel frustration in our body, what does that physically feel like? And they talk about your hands might start to shake or you might get really hot. And then what can we do to let that energy out in a constructive way? It's all very kid-friendly and kid-appropriate, and Jack loved it. Like, he will still be like, "Where? when's my therapy? Because, again, to them, it just looks like playing. But it's a great way to give them the tools they need to help that bridge that gap, help them get that impulse control back, help them learn how to focus and be mindful. It is super awesome. Alongside occupational therapy, step number five, definitely suggest play therapy or you might call this behavioral therapy. Um, it's the it's the kind of therapy that works on sort of your emotional and, and mental skills, like an adult might go to therapy. But of course, for kids, you're not sitting on a couch talking about your childhood. It is play. And that was really helpful for Jack to work through some feelings that he might be dealing with that may or may not have been a result of or um, aggravated by his ADHD. But it was a great way, again, for him to, you know, understand his big feelings and his big emotions, to practice that regulation and that control and to work those things out. And again, it was super fun for him and he really loved it. We were lucky to find a place that did occupational therapy and play therapy together at the same time. So um, it was a really great way for him to put these skills into practice that as he gets older, he can sort of um, best overcome the challenges that ADHD presents him. Um, Number six, get an IEP if you have kids who are school-aged or who are going to be school-aged. So an IEP is an Individualized Education Plan. 
And you start by uh, simply kind of going to the website of your school district and looking for information about special education. Usually there's some page and a contact email address. And you simply request an evaluation. An IEP is a pretty complicated process. There are all kinds of laws surrounding it. There are a million different policies. Um, It's super complex, and I do not uh, bill myself as an IEP expert by any means. Like That is a whole other industry that people are experts in. Um, They even have like IEP advocates who professionally help parents make sure they're getting the best services written into their IEP and that the school is following through with them. Like it's a whole, it's a whole industry out there. But essentially what it is, is a plan that a child who has a special need is given to specifically outline the kind of supports that they will get at school to make sure that they are are best equipped to learn. And there are different categories for IEPs and different reasons for IEPs. So it could be anything from your child has um, an illness like cancer or diabetes or something, and they need specific medical support at school, all the way to your child has a physical disability um, and they need help, to there's a cognitive delay, maybe it's autism, maybe it's an intellectual disability, and also things like ADHD. So there's a very wide variety of things. Oh, and then of course, just learning disabilities. So dyslexia, dysgraphia, etc. So there are all kinds of reasons why a child might qualify for an IEP. I should also mention that an IEP is for public schools only. Private schools have something slightly different, and I'm actually blanking on the term for it right now. I know some of you listeners are like screaming through the podcast what it's called, Um, but there is a a quasi-equivalent for private schools. This is another area where I'm not an expert, and there are nuances to this, this, but private schools are not required to accommodate a child who learns differently or has certain physical disabilities, depending on how that private school is funded. So we have not had positive experiences at all with private schools. We have been uh, kicked out of every private school we have attended or attempted to attend because they have just flat out said, like, we just don't serve kids who have needs like Jack. Like they have a one specific type of kid that they serve. And if you are not that kind of kid, then they, they just don't want you, which is for better or worse, they're right. So I would also advise parents when you are looking at a school to maybe not look at private schools. Um, There are private schools that exist specifically for kids with special needs. For example, there are schools that exist just for kids with ADHD, and those are private schools. And of course, I'm not talking about those schools, but for a a traditional private school, I, I also personally know a lot of people who have had very negative experiences with um, the, the private schools not wanting to accommodate their children, not being willing to accommodate their children, etc. I am sure there are also people who have had wonderful experiences, but for us, public school was the way to go because we knew by law they had to accommodate my son and his needs. But we also have come to love our public school because they have gone above and beyond in his IEP. People will tell you horror stories about their IEP. It's not uncommon for schools to resist giving a child an IEP or to resist adding services or to resist fulfilling the services that they add because it all comes down to money and resources. 
the support that is written into an IEP usually costs money. Um, you know, for example, uh, kids with ADHD might have um, a special education teacher that accompanies them in the traditional classroom and can help them sort of one-on-one while they are in their large group classroom setting to help them focus, to um, help catch them up when they're kind of like wandering off mentally and need to get refocused. But that costs the school a lot of money because they have to pay those professionals to, to be there, right? So sometimes schools will drag their feet and not want to provide all the accommodations that they could or should. That has not been our experience. It has been amazing. The school proactively has gone above and beyond. They have added things that I didn't even think of. It's been really fantastic. So if you are going through this process, do not be scared by the horror stories. Um, There are also really fantastic experiences like ours. One um, common misunderstanding is that you have to wait until your child starts kindergarten and is actually, you know, physically in the school to begin the IEP process. And that is not true. We actually started Jack's IEP process when he was still in preschool, knowing that he would be going into kindergarten at this particular school. The IEP process can take a long time because they have to They have a team of um, special educators, psychologists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, special ed teachers who evaluate each child um, to see, you know, do you qualify for an IEP? What kind of supports do you need? They measure them a million different ways through a million different tests to see kind of where they are developmentally. And that all takes a lot of time. So if you have a child going into kindergarten, Um, get the ball rolling now so that hopefully by day one of kindergarten, that IEP is already in place and you are ready to go. And that's what happened for us. We started it when he was still in preschool and it was finished in time so that on day one of kindergarten last year, he had all the support he needed in place and his teacher knew sort of how to work with him and best support him, which was awesome. So definitely get yourself one of those. (laughs) Um, And then step number seven, I would really encourage trying mindfulness activities like meditation and yoga. So there are so many kids yoga classes, kids meditation classes that are popping up, Um, even like kids Tai Chi. Jack has taken a few classes of that. I kind of consider it um, sort of like a complement to his occupational therapy and his play therapy and that these are really fun lessons that Jack loves doing, but just sort of boost that muscle of his of impulse control and mindfulness and focus and they're fun and he loves to do them. So we try to take those classes whenever possible. And finally, for step eight, consider medicine. So uh, this is generally where I get the most pushback. I can't tell you how many times I have been scrolling on Instagram or Facebook and I see some post and some comment where they're like, oh, ADHD is so overdiagnosed. We're pathologizing childhood and, uh, you know, we're drugging our kids for normal childhood behavior. First, I just want to say, I also agree that I'm sure there are children who are diagnosed with ADHD who don't actually have it. I am sure there are teachers and parents who have unrealistic expectations about a child's, especially a young child's behavior. 
I am sure there are classroom settings that don't allow nearly enough playtime or outdoor time, and some of these behavioral issues could probably be solved by that. But I am also sure, because I've seen it firsthand, that ADHD is a very real challenge that presents um, very real obstacles um, in a child's life. And just like any other sort of disorder that a child might face, there are medical treatments that can help it. And, you know, we would never judge a child who has asthma for using an inhaler. We would never judge a kid who has cancer for getting chemo. And so we also shouldn't judge kids with ADHD for taking medication. Um, You know, I saw, especially in our early days with Jack and his diagnosis, some really heartbreaking struggles. Um, If you don't have ADHD, and, and I don't, and so it's it's hard for me to understand this too, but I, I've seen it. So I think it's, um, I, I kind of get it as best I can for not having it. You know, imagine having a brain that pays attention to every stimuli with the utmost important, like it can't prioritize anything out. A great example is the other day, Jack and I were sitting down to practice his workbooks in the summer, just to keep his skills up. And at the top of the workbook, he just had to write his name, Jack, four letters, And I timed it (laughs) and it took him 22 minutes. And that's not because he doesn't know how to write his letters. And it's not because he doesn't know how to write his name. He, He knows those things. It's because every stimuli around him that most of us tune out distracted him so much that he completely forgot what he was doing and then had to like be refocused on the task at hand. Um, you know, the, the sound of a car, the splashing of the rain, the hum of our refrigerator. At one point, part of a previous letter he wrote, he said, look like a belly button. And then he got like hyper fixated on this letter he thought looked like a belly button. There was an itch on his knee. An eraser was next to him. He got up and ran around. He was feeling the pencil in his hand. These are things that you and I may not even notice. Our brain blocks it out because it's not important. But Jack's brain takes all of that stimulus in equally. And so it is really, really hard for his brain to identify which stimulus he needs to be focusing on at that moment and which things are are not worthy of his attention. And then to actually execute on that once he identifies that, right? He's like climbing a mountain range just to write four letters. And that is with medication, that is with now uh, almost three years of different therapies, it is still really, really hard for him. And before he was on medication, the struggles were even more heartbreaking. He could not um, talk in complete sentences very well because his thoughts would trail off mid-word, mid-sentence, And he could never complete a thought. And that was really heartbreaking because he would get so frustrated with himself and yet he couldn't stop it. Or he wasn't really eating much because he literally could not keep his body still enough to eat a meal. He was like running someplace else or looking at this or checking out that. Um, Even something as simple as like going to the bathroom. He was having a lot of accidents because you know, you have to pay attention to your body when you feel like it's time to go to the bathroom. And if you have 50 million other points of stimulus that your brain is paying attention to you, that your brain is paying attention to, 
having to go to the bathroom is just one tiny piece of noise amongst all the other noise and you might not hear it and then you have an accident. So for us, medication was an absolute game changer and a godsend. And I understand being nervous. You know, I'm nervous when I give Jack any kind of medication, allergy medication, Tylenol, right? We don't, we don't like to do that. We're always a little scared and that's fine. Um, and it's not something that I went to as our first option, nor do I think it should be an option in a vacuum, right? You can't expect that you just give a kid a pill and it fixes ADHD. That's not the way this medication or any medication for ADHD works. It simply slows their brain down enough to where he has enough time to pause and use all the other tools he has learned. So instead of his brain running 400 miles a second, and instead of all of the stimuli hitting him at once, he's got enough of a piece that he can think, oh, okay, I remember what I learned in an OT. I remember what I learned in therapy. I remember this this calming skill I learned in therapy and then put it into place and practice that muscle over and over and over again. And Jack is so much happier on the medication, as you can imagine, because he is able to do these basic things in life and more without feeling like he's climbing this mountain all the time. You know, I was also really afraid that the medicines would make Jack a zombie. Like he's got a lot of energy. He's a very energetic kid. And I did not want to turn my kid into a zombie and make him well-behaved, right? I was like, I don't want a well-behaved zombie. And um, there were some uh, initial drowsiness side effects from the medication that were short-lived. And then after a couple of weeks, his body got used to it and the drowsiness went away. But I can personally attest that he is still a super high energy kid, even with the medications he's on. He's still like an 11.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. So that was the other thing that was really awesome is it didn't change his personality. It didn't take away his energy. It just gave his brain enough peace and enough zen (laughs) to be able to use all of these other tools that he has. Um, But the medicine is sort of a trial and error process as well. There are all kinds of different medications that I won't get into, but your developmental pediatrician can. And some work really well for some kids and some do not work really well. Uh, As an example, we tried to use a stimulant with Jack. Stimulants are a very common ADHD medication. A lot of kids have great success with them. And Jack had a terrible experience with it. (laughs) It was awful. I still have like PTSD about the two days that he was on stimulants. It was terrible. So we were like, okay, stimulants are not going to work for us right now. But then we quickly found another medication that did. And it was, it was amazing. And as you know, Jack grows and his brain chemistry changes and he gets bigger, we may have to experiment with medication again. So it is a little bit of trial and error. And Sometimes the first medicine you try might not be the best fit, but holy cow, it has been such a game changer. The other thing that helped me understand why medication was important to consider, um, and I heard this from several different providers, is that they have found anecdotally um, that when kids with ADHD or really any other sort of challenge that can be helped with medication, depression, anxiety, et cetera, when they um, don't have medication that they need or don't have the therapeutic support that they need, they will eventually learn to self-medicate. 
And, you know, when they're in their teens or even as adults, that might look like um, drug use or alcohol abuse or cutting, right? All things that people use to self-medicate. And obviously those things aren't great. And I didn't want that to happen. You know, Jack has a um, biological family history of substance abuse and addiction. And I've had conversations with his bio parents and they both feel like they have had or struggled with ADHD in the past. And they both felt like that played a role in their um, drug use is they didn't necessarily consciously realize it, but they were trying to self-medicate. And so a lot of people have made the argument to me, and I fully believe this, that if at a young age, you give a child the tools they need, therapeutic supports and medical supports, hopefully they will not feel the need to self-medicate in an unhealthy way when they are older. So that is my explanation of medication. You know, we're not drugging kids. We are not, this is not the case of a three-year-old boy who couldn't sit still for eight hours. And so we gave him a sedative, right? This is something where it was getting in the way of the basic um, quality of life and medications have been a huge game changer. So those are the eight steps that I would look into. So just a quick recap. Number one, start with your pediatrician. Number two, find a developmental pediatrician. Number three, consider a developmental preschool. Number four, try occupational therapy. Number five, try play therapy. Number six, get an IEP or the private school equivalent if you have school-aged kids and deeply consider private, I'm sorry, deeply consider public school over private school, at least initially, because your kids might be more protected there. Uh, number seven, try some mindfulness activities like meditation and yoga as a complement to the therapies that I mentioned above. And number eight, consider medication. Two more things that I'll just mention very briefly. I'm not counting them as official steps because my reaction to them is kind of like, meh. Um, we find nature-based play has been very helpful. So uh, with Jack, we try to be outside as much as possible. I believe there's something really healing and uh, regulating about nature. So just one piece of unofficial advice is we, in addition to letting out his energy, <laughs> um, I find nature itself has been very helpful for him. The other thing that people will mention a lot is um, different dyes and foods and avoiding those dyes. My reaction to that has been like, meh. I mean, look, we should probably all be avoiding some of these dyes because they're not good for us. And many of these dyes have been banned in other countries because they have been known to have adverse side effects in certain populations. So, you know, sure, it's not going to hurt you to avoid certain dyes in food. Um, but there have also been no conclusive studies showing that it is necessarily linked to ADHD or um, exacerbates ADHD behavior. So anecdotally, if you feel like it's helping, like, of course, do it. Um, for us, we didn't notice a difference. And also, it's like really hard and time consuming to do. If we would have noticed a difference, we probably would have kept it up, but we did not notice a difference. So like your average well-informed parent, I try to avoid those kinds of food dyes as much as possible, but I also don't lose sleep over it. So those are my other two addendums I'll put on there. So if you have any other tips for parents who are navigating a new ADHD diagnosis or a suspected diagnosis, let me know and I can add them to my next podcast episode as an update. 
If you're in the Indianapolis area and you'd like some specific resource referrals of the kinds of things I mentioned, I am happy to give those out. Shoot me a message on Instagram or an email. And as always, if you have topics that you'd like to see on this podcast, feedback, I love it. Please uh, email me elizabeth.friedland at gmail.com. Or you can also message me on Instagram at efriedland. And as always, thank you for listening.